Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Welcome to part two of my interview with Professor Noam Chomsky. All intellectuals of our generation, at least if they are genuine intellectuals, are in some sense children of Noam Chomsky. No single contemporary intellectual has broken more ground or elucidated more of our reality as a society, nation, and empire than Noam Chomsky. He is a world-renowned linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, essayist, social critic, as well as a fearless political activist. He is the author of more than 150 books on topics that include linguistics, the press, the inner workings of empire, the Israel-Palestine conflict, and the war industry. He is a laureate professor of linguistics at the University of Arizona and an institute professor emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His books include Hegemony or Survival for Reasons of State, American Power and the New Mandarins, Understanding Power, the Chomsky-Foucault debate on human nature, on language, objectivity, and liberal scholarship, The Fateful Triangle, and many others. His latest book is Notes on Resistance, interviews by David Barsamian. Joining me for part two of our interview is Professor Noam Chomsky. I, w- I wondered if you could speak about the origins of authoritarianism and neo-fascism in the United States, as well as uh, much of the rest of the world, from Viktor Orban in Hungary to Narendra Modi. You mentioned him last week in India. What are the forces that created these political monstrosities? And I, I wonder how similar this moment in history is to the 1930s. Well, that touches a personal, has a personal meaning to me. I'm old enough to remember the 30s. But, uh, and there's a certain irony. In the 1930s, as a child, I could sense the enormous fear that uh, fascism was spreading inexorably over the world. Uh, actually, this First article I wrote, the Canada School newspapers, an article was about the fall of Barcelona, the Franco's victory in Spain, Austria had gone, Czechoslovakia had gone, now Spain is gone, is it ever going to end? There was at that time a sign of hope, the United States. The United States was breaking from the fascist type pattern, though there were fascist elements here with the New Deal, labor action, uh, beginnings of social democracy that stood counter to the collapse of continental Europe to fascism. Unfortunately, it's not being replicated. In some ways, even the opposite. Uh, Take a look at... uh, Orban's Hungary, which you mentioned. That's a striking case. Orban has created what he called an illiberal democracy. It means no democracy. State power takes over, destroys the media, destroys the academic world, no political parties, 
national independent institutions create a Christian nationalist, reactionary Christian nationalist, uh, racist state. That's Victor Orban. That's the ideal of the Republican Party. We see it. About a month ago, there was a conference in Budapest of the far-right organizations in Europe with many with neo-fascist origins in Budapest, naturally, because that's the ideal. Uh, the star uh, participant was the Conservative Political Action Conference. It's basically the core of the Republican Party. They actively participated. Trump gave a speech lauding Orban as the vision of the future. And, um, Tucker Carlson went wild about it. He worships him on a documentary about him. A couple of weeks later, there was a conference in Dallas, Texas, run by the same group, conservative political action conference, core of the Republican Party. Who was the keynote speaker? Victor Orban. And that's the ideal to which we want to strive. Racist, proto-fascist, Christian nationalist, uh, illiberal uh, society which crushes independent thought, independent media to the extent that they are, and the other institutions. Well, in a week, in a couple of weeks, there's going to be a vote about that in the United States. Supreme Court has already been basically handed over to these forces. Justice Alito makes speeches at the Vatican in which he almost says it. The other school on most reactionary court in memory, taking up this coming term some really scary cases that it had no reason to take up other than as an effort to try to undermine democracy even further and lay the basis for takeover of the country by a far-right minority party. Republican Party, I hate to call it a party even more, uh, that can be a permanent governing party as a minority party by all kind of chicanery and mechanisms, including cases the court has decided to take up, like Murphy Harper, which could lay the basis for legislators in states simply overturning the popular vote, could go that far. These are all developments taking place right here, perfectly open, uh, taking place in Europe. Uh, the Modi case, I think, has slightly different origins. That's creating a racist Hindu ethnocracy in a country with a very large Muslim population of, uh, and tearing to shreds Indian secular democracy. It fits into the pattern, but with somewhat different sources. In the West, I think uh, a large part of what's happening, very large part, is the bitter, savage class war that's been conducted for the last 40 years 
It's called neoliberalism. It even has rhetoric about markets and so on. But that's highly misleading. It's basically savage class war. And it was understood by the leaders. It starts with Reagan and Thatcher. Their first moves in office were to attack, undermine the labor movement, opening the door for the corporate sector to enter with illegal strike-breaking efforts, uh, organization efforts, tolerated by the criminal state. That made sense. If you're going to carry out a bitter, savage class war, better eliminate all the means of defense. And it's gone on. For the United States, we have measures of it. I'm sure you know the Rand Corporation about a year ago came out with an estimate that uh, about $50 trillion, it's not pennies, $50 trillion had been transferred to the pockets of the top 1%, up to a fraction of them, mostly in the last 40 years of class war. Meanwhile, real wages have stagnated for male workers. Uh, benefits have collapsed. Um, in fact, it's quite striking. You look back at the 1970s, the United States was not all that different from other industrial powers and such things as costs of health care, availability of health care, uh, mortality, uh, incarceration, measure after measure. Then it started splitting. Uh, bad enough in the other industrial societies. England is much like the United States, but to some extent in Europe. Well, what all of these things have done is create waves of anger, resentment for institutions, hopelessness, uh, and it's just fertile terrain for demagogues. Trump's a perfect example. Very good at it. Comes, stands with a sign in one hand saying, I love you, while in the other hand he's stabbing in the back. His entire legislative program is a bitter attack on working people and the poor. Similar things have been happening in Europe. Individually, in individual cases, you can see differences. But it's pretty common all over. And uh, this has, I mean, it's not the first time in American history. You look back to the 1920s, it wasn't all that different from today. Uh, labor had been crushed by Woodrow Wilson's uh, repressive actions, Red Scare, the worst repression in American history. And so they used the espionage act to undermine uh, political parties, socialist party, independent thought, independent media, uh, labor, huge inequality. Uh, that was then. We're living in a similar period. And I thought, well, there are many different causes for the phenomenon you describe. I think there's one fundamental strain that underlies all of them. When you destroy the social order, destroy the 
possibilities for people to organize and protect themselves, atomize the society, people living with precarious jobs, and go through Trump territory, rural towns in the United States. The industries are gone, thanks to Bill Clinton's uh, neoliberal globalization uh, uh, programs, which were explicitly designed to undermine American labor and to support uh, investor rights and corporate rights, and did that, in fact. Labor was opposed to this, but they were dismissed. Press wouldn't even talk about their proposals. Uh, well, houses boarded up, young people living, people. Mortality is even increasing, which is unheard of, in the white working class. Nothing like that's happened. It's a sign they're called by economists deaths of despair. It's been going on for the last couple of years. Uh, in this kind of environment, you can get uh, support for proto-fascist elements of the Trump variety, Orban, um, Milani in Italy, Salvini, Farage in England. Uh, yes, these crop up as a this fertile territory for them. And I think the right answer can be achieved is what was done in the 30s. Labor movement revived. Political organizations that were lively. Uh, labor action took place. Sympathetic administration. You got the origins of social democracy. A lot of things to criticize in it. Plenty. But uh, a big step forward for basic human rights and human welfare. I want to ask about the Democratic Party uh, because this kind of slow motion corporate coup d'etat to steal a line from John Ralston Saul produced these figures like Clinton, who you mentioned, Tony Blair. The labor uh, had some voice in the Labor Party in the UK and in the Democratic Party. And as you correctly pointed out, uh, Clinton betrayed labor. Uh, we now see the Biden administration. It, it is not able to fulfill its most tepid campaign promises, including uh, $15 minimum wage, its Build Back Better plan. To what extent is the uh, ineffectiveness uh, and even alliance with the Democratic Party, with corporate America, to blame for the rise of this neo-fascism? Considerably. It starts in the late quarter years. Uh, the Democratic Party in the 1970s basically abandoned whatever commitment it had to the working class and the poor became a party of affluent professionals, kind of people who show up at Obama's fancy parties to listen to Beyonce. Uh, the, uh, uh, the last gasp of uh, solicited concern for the interests of working people was the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill of 1978. Uh, Carter didn't veto it, but he watered it down so that it was toothless, voluntary. Since then, it's 
hard to find anything. It's just, so yes, that means that there's no defense for working people in the political system. To Biden's credit, he did better than I expected, I should say, on the domestic front, not international. So take the Build Back Better program, which I think probably came out of Bernie Sanders' office in the Senate Budget Committee and was based on lots of activism on the ground, mostly by young people, just as the climate program was. But wasn't a bad program. It was cut away step by step by a hundred percent Republican opposition. Republicans aren't a political party. There's some other kind of organization. Got to block everything that might help the public, but might rebound to the benefit of the other party. So block everything, and a couple of right-wing Democrats went along. And you can argue that Biden could have fought much harder for him. He's not a fighter. He's not Roosevelt. Well, nevertheless, by the standards of the past, he did take some steps back towards the time when the Democrats had at least some kind of concern for working people and the poor couldn't get very far with it. Uh, The shift to the right over the past couple of generations is pretty startling. You go back and you look at somebody like Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, I remember when Eisenhower was elected in 52, I thought the world was coming to an end. How can we have such a reactionary president? You look back now, it looks like a flame liberal. His positions are not all that different from Bernie Sanders in many areas. Strong supporter of the New Deal. Speeches saying that anybody who doesn't think that workers should have the right to organize doesn't belong in our political system. That's conservatism back in the 1950s. Uh, Bernie Sanders, is, who I think is doing a great job, is uh, considered very radical with positions that by our past standards or by European standards look like moderate social democracy. Uh, well, we countries really shifted in the last 50 or 60 years with the mainly with the neoliberal assault, which we should regard as what it is savage class war, and one of the major victims is all of organized human society. It's led by climate deniers. It's 100% of the Republican Party, Trump, of course. They're going to kill us all, maximize the use of fossil fuels, eliminate measures to mitigate the disaster. We have a narrow window in which we can overcome what will be the final crisis for human beings on Earth. Narrow window is being closed. Uh, and these forces, they already have the Supreme Court. They're likely to take Congress, lay the basis for undercutting 
democratic elections by all sorts of means that we're familiar with may become a permanent minority party, leading the way over the precipice joyfully with the strong support of the corporate sector, which is gleeful, as profits bloated with profits, as it's racing to destroy the world. It's an astonishing picture. I want to ask about foreign policy uh, and Ukraine. Uh, we've given some $50 billion in weapons and aid to Ukraine. That's almost the entire budget of the State Department and USAID. Uh, you, uh, Seymour Melman, and others have written about the permanent war economy and the economic and social consequences of that. Uh, unchecked militarism is often cited by historians such as Arnold Tonby as the principal reason for the collapse of empires. Is this where we are? And if we are, what does collapse look like? Given the current rhetoric and the perpetuation of the war in Ukraine, it may look like a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. There are unique characteristics here. You captured U.S. policy accurately. Official U.S. policy continually reiterated by Defense Secretary Lord Austin and others is we must perpetuate the war in Ukraine in order to severely weaken Russia, meaning no diplomatic settlement, perpetuate the war. Meanwhile, we are pouring out resources into destruction. Others are as well. We keep on the present course. We're going to go over the precipice. We're already reaching irreversible tipping points. World Meteorological Association just, I think, yesterday, a couple of days ago, came out with an analysis saying we've got to double renewable electric by 2030, or else we're done for. And we have to end fossil fuel use by what's called net zero by 2050, and we shouldn't be misled by that. Net zero can mean, and the corporate sector wants it to mean, keep using fossil fuels and pretend to remove the poisons from the atmosphere. Not that. When they talk about net zero, they mean stop using them, except that the fringes don't rely on them. Well, that's quite a task. It's feasible. But while we, instead of working on that, what we're working on is maximizing the use of fossil fuels. We need them for the war in Ukraine. We need them uh, because uh, the gas prices are too high and so on. In fact, sometimes when you look at what the human species is doing, you don't know whether to laugh or cry and take one of the best newspapers in the world. The Israeli newspaper, it's very good newspaper, critical and defending newspaper, has a lead article today lauding the agreement between Lebanon and Israel over the natural gas fields in the Mediterranean near the border. Just take a look at the scientific analysis. 
A week ago, Israeli scientists who are quite good came out with analyses showing that their earlier estimates were far too conservative, that the Mediterranean, eastern Mediterranean, is going to rise two and a half meters by the end of the century, 10 feet roughly. Can you imagine what that means? Here you have Lebanon and Israel squabbling over who will administer the coup de grace when the two countries collapse underwater. I mean, if you wanted to write a satire on the human species, you wouldn't know how to do it because what they're doing exceeds satire. And the same thing's happening in South Asia, same thing's happening with Ukraine. Maximize destruction, don't move to a negotiated settlement. That's, uh, um, you know, try to say something about that. You're denounced as uh, uh, Munich, uh, pro Putin, this, that, the other thing. It's what almost all the world wants. Back to that question we discussed last week about not knowing what people want. I mean, almost the entire world is calling for a negotiated settlement right now. Even uh, three quarters of Germans right through Europe. No, can't have it. Got to keep the war going, the weaken Russia, uh, pouring out fossil fuels, reversing the limited measures to try to deal with the overwhelming crisis we're facing. If you look at the details, you hardly know how to talk about them. Take a look at the corporate sector. I'm sure you saw this, but a couple of weeks, one of the big concerns of scientists is the heating of the Arctic is going much far faster than the rest of the world, which exposes the permafrost. Permafrost has a huge, colossal amount of carbon in If it melts, it all goes into the atmosphere. Well, one of the oil companies, ConocoPhillips, their scientists figured out a clever way to slow down the warming of the permafrost, some technique for driving cooling runs into it. Great. Why are they doing it? So that they can harden the surface of the permafrost and drill oil, drill for oil. Are we all insane? I mean, you can now, to do Biden, yeah, you know, what's left of the climate bill, a little bit, not much, provides credits for carbon removal, removal of carbon for the atmosphere. So ExxonMobil's going to new fields that have so much carbon in them that they, they don't want to use them for oil. And they're drilling there so they can get carbon out which they can then remove by some mostly non-existent technology and get credits or subsidies from the government. It's like capitalism going insane. Not just savage capitalism going totally insane. All of this is happening before it arrives. It's like the end of Easter Island. Uh, I, I want to ask whether you think the corporate state is reformable uh, or does it have to be overthrown uh, the way the decayed communist regimes in 
Eastern Europe and the old Soviet Union uh, were overthrown. I know you support Extinction Rebellion, as, as do I. Uh, that's certainly the position they're coming from. Well, I can understand the reasoning on what I was just discussing, which is a tiny example uh, supports the reasoning, but there's a problem. Time. You look at the time scales for dealing with the huge problem of heating, destroying the environment. Compare that with the possible time scale for large-scale change in our socioeconomic system. They're not in sync. The timing for dealing with the climate catastrophe is much narrower. So like it or not, we're going to have to deal with this problem within a reformed, controlled, regimented state capitalist system. We can work on trying to go beyond at the same time. Shouldn't give that up. But I think that's the real world that we're living in. Well, that's not impossible. Remember that before the neoliberal class war of the last 40 years, there was a period of what's called regimented capitalism, not beautiful by any means, but under control. That's when you had a conservative like Eisenhower strongly supporting labor rights, very high growth rate, highest in history, but pretty egalitarian, a lot of progress on many fronts. No financial crises, because the Treasury Department was doing its job. They ended with Reagan and just opened statements to anything you want to enrich yourself. And then financial crisis after crisis, and bailouts and so on. But that didn't happen in the 50s and 60s. Well, it was capitalism or other state capitalism. Plenty of flaws, serious ones, but at least not suicidal, like the current system. So, I think it's possible. Meanwhile, at the same time, I think we should be working to lay the basis in consciousness and institutions for going well beyond. Great. That was Professor Noam Chomsky. His new book is Notes on Resistance, interviews by David Barsamian. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.